All right, welcome back to the Adhocracy Podcast. Had to take a brief hiatus there for a couple weeks with a bout of COVID. Uh, all back, all back to normal now. Feeling great, <laughs> but uh, had a great podcast here with Mr. Henry Hurd. He's a former Boeing employee who retired recently and decided to sell all he had and go live in the Caribbean on a boat. <laughs> it's a great, great story here. Um, had a lot of fun talking with him. Learned a learned a few nautical terms, and had a great time just, just chatting with Henry. So, hope you enjoy. Boom, we're live. Thank you very much, Henry Hurd, for joining me. Well, thank you for having me, Luke. Yeah, so how was Mexico? I hear you uh, hear you just went down there and uh, wanted to get some sun. Yeah, well, we, uh, we went down to Mexico. We went to uh, Los... Uh, San Jose del Cabo rather than Cabo San Lucas okay. um, because it's a little more mellow and we've been working on a, on a home here uh, that was, uh, it was a short sale home and it was kind of a, uh, a real project. So <laughs> we kind of wanted to go down and have kind of a laid back week where we're just weren't immersed in a whole project. So yeah. That makes good. sense. I mean, you, how long have you been working on the house now? Uh, we actually moved in in early February and uh, we waited five months. It was a short sale of bankruptcy. So we waited mm. five months to close on the house. And then uh, by the time we got in here, uh, we just saw how much potential it really had after only visiting it a couple of times. And then we just hunkered down and just started project after project after project. And it's really becoming kind of a, a space that we, that we really like. So nice. That's awesome. That's uh, you know, it's, it's, it's gotta be, gotta be nice to, you know, do projects and get stuff done and turn something that, you know, might not be exactly what you want and be able to really craft it into something that you guys want to stay in. So that's, that's great. Yes. yes. It's, it's uh, very fulfilling. It's actually very fulfilling. A lot of work, um, both indoors and outdoors, you mm. know, yard and home, but, uh, it's coming along nicely. So did it come with a little bit of land ways to go? Still have a ways to go for sure. Mm. Did it come with a little bit of land at all? Uh, just a little bit under an acre. And oh, uh, the nice thing is, is we have a beautiful view of the Olympic mountains right out of our, right out yeah. of our family room and off our deck. So yeah. that's awesome. Panoramic view. So we, we're really liking that. It's a pretty great mountain range to have a view of. So, yes. <laughs> so you went down for some sun, huh? Yeah, it was good. It was good. We uh, did a little bit of ATV ran, you know, some did uh, the quads, you know, and things mm -hmm. like that. Other than that, we just kind of basically, you know, laid back, read some books, relaxed, and, uh, you know, just uh, recharged, shall we? Yeah, I hear you. Well, probably got a little bit more sun down there than you would up here, too. So <laughs> yep. that part's real nice, I'm sure. But uh, anyways, the, the, the main thing I wanted to have you on to talk about is uh, your adventures right after retiring from Boeing. Um, uh-huh where you basically decided I'm going to go live on the water. <laughs> and, yes. uh, that's, you know, it's, you know, life in the Caribbean, uh, for a retirement, you know, a lot of times it, it sounds, it sounds amazing when you just, when you're just sitting back and thinking about it, but actually going and doing it, I'm sure was, um, was quite the task. And, uh, 
I don't know. I'm, I'm, I'm just curious to hear, you know, what had, had you had much experience on the water before time in the Caribbean? Like what made you, what made you go that direction? Well, um, you know, I grew up in the Midwest, um, you know, their summertime is out boating on lakes, but it's speed boats and things like that. Right. Mm-hmm. Um, but I remember as a teen reading, uh, books about sailing, uh, Dove is a big one, uh, young, uh, circumnavigator, um, then with YouTube and everything, you begin to watch some of these YouTube videos of boaters and working at Boeing all the time and putting <laughs> hours, you begin to dream a little bit more and more about, you know, retiring and going and living your dream. And, um, so, you know, there's other things, uh, uh, a book, uh, an amazing book that's a lot of fun to read, Leap of Faith, um, which uh, was uh, a book that, uh, about people who had retired and moved onto a boat and was very inspirational. And so there, there was just kind of things that were continued to feed my, uh, my desire to okay. get out onto the water. And, um, and I didn't have a ton of sailing experience. Um, I had a little bit of sailing experience here in Puget Sound uh, with a club. And I got a couple of uh, uh, ASA certifications, um, very rudimentary, you know, certifications, uh, classes. And, but that's not terribly uncommon, quite frankly. You Mm. find a lot of people that get into sailing and maybe go all in kind of like my wife and I did. My wife's Frankie. Uh, so Frankie and I uh, kind of went all in, but we're not, we're, we're not actually, you know, an oddity. Uh, there's quite a few people that dive in and, you know, just start from scratch and it's a steep learning curve, but it's certainly one that you can, pick up fairly easily. Um, and you know, it's, uh, you just learn a lot. You learn a lot in a very short time. Sure. So, so, so those, (laughs) those certifications that you did, was that specific to, to sailboats or was that just out on the water type certifications? No, that's particular to sailboats. So basically, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of jargon that you have to learn, you know, everything's, everything's called a rope is called a line, uh, chain call a road. Uh, you know, there's just a lot of terms that you pick up. There's a lot of, um, just sailing basics. Um, whether you're on a, on a beam reach or a broad reach or tacking all of these kind of terms, that you learn and pick up as you sail with instructor and, you know, some other beginner sailors. So there's, there's a lot to learn at the outset, but it's all very interesting. Yeah. I mean, that, that all sounds like a foreign language to me. I mean, it's all English, but (laughs) it kind of is. Yes. (laughs) Um, So when you got those certifications, was that like, was that just a hobby at the time or was that like you had visions of, of the Caribbean one day. Oh, I had visions of the Caribbean. Yeah. I, okay. I, I was, it was always in the back of my head that it was something that I'd like to try. Um, and it just led me closer and closer. Cause then you begin to meet people who 
Uh, in fact, one of my instructors um, is he, here in the Puget Sound area in the summertime, but he basically goes down to Sea of Cortez and, and snowbirds down to Sea of Cortez, lives on his sailboat um, through the winter. And, you know, so, well, that doesn't sound like a, like a, <laughs> you know, so there's, you, you come across these folks that have had a lot of experience and kind of inspire you to, yeah, take the next step. Kind of thing. Interesting. So what was it, uh, what was it like trying to, to get a boat? Because that's what uh, I'm imagine that's some kind of a large sale over international borders. And that had to be like how you find one that you're interested in yeah that's uh it is it is kind of interesting um we went to annapolis annapolis boat show is one of the biggest boat shows in the country if not the world so we went uh Mm. out to uh, maryland to to go to annapolis my wife and i and um we walked around we were looking at various boats we kind of knew at the time that we were interested in a catamaran um, versus a monohull. Um, most of my training was on monohulls, but they can be very, um, uh, they can be very unstable in the water. Whereas a catamaran with the two pontoons, uh, can be much more comfortable. Um, so we kind of decided that we wanted to get a catamaran, went to Annapolis, looked at various models, uh, makes and models of catamarans, and then began looking online uh, for what we wanted. And we narrowed it down. We were looking for like a 42 foot lagoon, which is what we ended up with. Um, And we found one for sale down in Grenada in the Caribbean. Um, We had met a broker in, at an at the Annapolis boat show, whom we really liked. and he helped kind of set up the the transaction. So it does definitely help to have a, a boat broker. Um, there are for sale by owner and things like that, but there are a fair amount of um, especially when you're doing it in a you know in a on an island in the Caribbean. There are a lot of details that a broker can help get you through. Oh, I'm sure. We found that particular boat. Um, he helped us uh, line up with a surveyor to come down and survey the boat. Um, and uh, we, we, it was really kind of what we were looking for. Nice. So, so how far along, like when you were doing your, your training and certification, how much of that, because I know you guys spent a fair amount of time down in Grenada doing some of that like training and spending time on the water. How much of that yes. was... Like what majority did you spend up here in Puget Sound versus down there? Oh, well, we we only bounced back to basically tie up loose ends. So, you know, basically moving on to a boat, you're severely downsizing. You're getting rid of lots of uh, things that you're not going to need or use. Um, You're putting things in storage that uh, you don't want to part with. And you're spending most of your time just tying up loose ends and so that you can move down there and any boat that you purchase is going to have 
um, is going to have some things if it's, you know, whether it actually, whether it's used or a new boat, uh, it's very likely going to have things that you want to do to it to make it yours. Just like, sure. Just like the home that we were talking about. Um, so the, the surveyor comes up, you know, with a, with a half a dozen things that need to be addressed and you get it hauled out, uh, onto land and you begin working those projects, um, which fortunately you're, you're in a boatyard. So there are a number of contractors that are available to do this and that, mm. but you know, it, takes a little pushing. You're down in the island. There's lots of people with lots of boats that need lots of work. And the person who's there, you know, kind of prodding the contractors is the one who gets them done. If you're not down there prodding them, they'll tell you that, yes, we'll, we'll, we'll handle that. And then you'll be down there a couple of weeks later and it won't actually be done until you, you know. So, so squeaky bit. wheel gets the oil, but you have to pretty much constantly be squeaking. <laughs> <laughs> that is, that's pretty much it. So okay. be down there. You have to be very friendly and, but firm and that, you know, to get, to get those projects taken care of. Yep. Nice. So when you first got it, uh, was the was the boat in the condition that you were were kind of expecting it to be, or I mean, how many was it like, you know, surprises yeah, buried part, in the hull? No, for the most part, it was in very good condition. It was a uh, 2007 uh, 42 foot uh, catamaran. Um, it was an owner's version, which is a little bit different. There, there's really two types of catamarans. There's the owner version and the charter version. The charter versions that you find on the secondhand market basically have four staterooms that are kind of equal. Um, one on port side, or two on the port side, two on the starboard side, uh, both in the bow and in the stern. Mm. And uh, that's because basically they've been used as charter boats that people have rented and then they're for sale in the secondhand market. Uh, what we were really interested in was the owner's version. The owner's version is different in that one hull, in the case of the Lagoon 420, uh, or 42-foot Lagoon, they called it 420, uh, the port hull is the master stateroom. So it's basically... Um, a bunk, uh, a little settee area, and then the head. Uh, and on the other side, you have two guest staterooms and two heads on the other side, two showers, two heads on the other side. So it's really nice if, you, uh, if you're going to actually be on it and living on it as a couple, um, to have the whole port side as your master stateroom is very comfortable. Yeah, um, having the space. Yeah, totally. Yeah, absolutely. So um, so we found that survey comes up. It points out things that need to be taken care of. Um, and then, you you know, you, you have to go and, and find the contractors or do the work yourself or find the contractors. Um, some things you tackle yourself um, because, you, you know, you either feel that this is something that you're 
comfortable doing, or there are other people also um, in the boatyard that have boats that you kind of make friends with and they'll help walk you through because they may have been doing this for a number of years. So even if you're a newbie doing this, they'll say, yeah, I can show you how to do that. And next thing you know, you, you know, you're, you're doing those kind of maintenance type things. So it sounds like it's a pretty, it's a pretty good community that you found down there. Oh my gosh. That is one of the best things about sailing in the Caribbean is um, the, the cruising community is an amazing group of people. Everybody helps everybody else. Um, we all have the same kind of, you know, problems with the boats and we all have the same interests and we all want to navigate to certain places and the sharing of information and the sharing of help is probably the most amazing that I've ever really seen. Wow. That's great. So is it a, I mean, I know you bounced around a bit. How often did you run into the same people? Just, I mean, I'm sure there was a few people you, you sought out to go meet at a certain place, but how how often did you run into just the same strangers that eventually became friends? (laughs) Um, Occasionally, more likely, as you as you basically mentioned, is that you meet up with people uh, and then basically they're going to be going to a particular island and you're thinking, ah, well, that we haven't been there. And they say, well, why don't you meet us up there? And, you know, you kind of buddy boat from here to there and meet up with them or you know we've oftentimes just pulled up anchor at the same time in the morning and uh you know headed off just you know within a within a mile of each other nice that's got to be uh yeah that uh, having a a close community like that has to i mean like like you said it's got to be i mean you're out there having an adventure you're out there in the sun you're out there having an amazing time already and then being out there with good people has got to just. Well, yes. And I must say we had a very nice boat that made for great happy hours. <laughs> <laughs> we had a, a whole cabin area um, that was very comfortable with a very high uh, ceiling area that made um, for just a, a you know, a good place for people to come over. We would either uh, sometimes just kind of do a potluck kind of dinner, um, but there would always be, there was always be rum and, and beer uh, <laughs> for those sundowns for sure. Nice. So this wasn't one of those, uh, you, you didn't want to get into one of those situations like I think it was Captain Jack Sparrow. Why is the rum gone? You didn't want to end up like that? No, no, you <laughs> never want to end up, never want to end up in that situation. No. <laughs> nice. So uh, when, when you got the boat up out of the water, how long was it out of the water before you were able to, I mean, I'm assuming you pull it out of the water for a, yeah. is that just for stability reasons while you're working on the project or is that so you can work on the hulls? Yeah, it's a little bit of everything. Um, typically you, uh, you want anti-fouling paint and that's part of what you have to do after, you know, every, really every couple of years uh, is replace the anti-fouling paint to keep the barnacles and the growth down. So every couple of years, 
you're going to be hauling it out. So when you're purchasing the boat and you have the survey done, uh, it's just, you want to kind of start fresh, right? Sure. You have it pulled out and you basically have the all stripped down, repainted. Um, you want it, you know, well cleaned and everything. And, um, it is pretty key because I must say, while you're out cruising, um, you do pick up a lot of, uh, a lot of bottom growth. And while you necessarily have a yard to maintain, mm-hmm. you call to maintain, which is one of the things that I found, um, that, yeah, I'm not mowing the lawn, but you know, every week or two I'm scraping the hull. Really? Oh yeah. Yeah. So how, how, how do you do that without damaging the paint? Well, you just want to use a plastic scraper and the barnacles will kind of pop off. Um, but, you know, um, we actually did a couple of things. One is anti-fouling paint. The other is one of the things that we also did was install an ultrasonic unit that basically sends out a little ultrasonic ping down there. And it doesn't bother fish or other sea life, but it does keep a lot of the the growth off of the hull interesting so is that like just in yeah. one spot on the on, on the on the no hull, we actually it's kind of spread out we actually purchased one that had three ultrasonic unit or four ultrasonic units and um yeah and like i said it, it doesn't seem to bother any of the you know whether we had uh uh rays under the boat or turtles or things like that they they're not bothered the least by it, nor are the fish because the fish come when you're scraping the bottom, they're coming for the, for the smorgasbord. Yeah. Um, but I will say if you don't turn off the ultrasound, it does kind of hit your inner ear. If you're down oh, really? to where it, yeah, to where it's pinging and it's kind of, it's kind it's a, it's kind of a little bit of an uncomfortable inner ear ping to it. So did you turn it off at night basically? No, basically just turn it off when you're down under the hull in the water because it's Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. Interesting. You can't really hear it. It's a, it's a tiny little click inside the hull. Inside if you pull up the floorboards down where the units are cemented to the floor, um it's a little tiny click, but outside if you're under the water near the hull, you hear it in your inner ear. Hmm. Kind of, but yeah, it works. Well, if it works, you know. <laughs> so that that the anti-fouling paint is that basically like the the dark blue that's on the bottom of the paint or on the bottom of the ship, and then above that, it's yeah. They have different things. Um, they have different paints. Some are uh, some are not necessarily uh, legal to use in the in the mm-hmm. you know they have they have uh, metals in them like copper and oh. things that uh, are getting phased out um, and um, you know, there's just, there's different formulas, but I will say it's probably some of the most expensive paint I've ever come across. <laughs> okay. <laughs> so, so aside from the paint um, and I'm assuming, you know, kind of cleaning the boat out, did you make any like larger modifications to the boat that, you know, you're, you're putting on the uh, the big steering wheel and getting the big 
pirate hat or anything like that? <laughs> uh, not too many. We were a little bit, um, you know, there were, there were some modifications that after a while we realized we had to do. Um, one of which that was driving us close to insanity was the fact that we had two freshwater tanks, one on uh, the starboard side, one on the port side. Mm-hmm. We have a water maker which is basically making fresh water out of seawater, which is basically all the fresh water that you use. Okay. Um, so, but the, the water maker, for whatever reason, the manufacturer of the boat, for whatever reason, it only filled the starboard tank. So now you have a port tank that will not be filled um, unless you go into a dock or something and fill it via a hose, something like that. Huh. Um, yeah, so that's half of your water uh, that you can't really replace or replenish. Uh, took a little while and a little bit of uh, engineering to replumb the boat a bit so that I could fill both tanks from the water maker, which was a real game changer. But it's kind of a head scratcher because it's not always easy to run things from one side of the boat to the other. Oh, I'm, I'm sure. A little bit uh, perplexed why they didn't just put in a couple of dedicated conduits, one for electrical, one for plumbing, and just run them under the, the main cabin floor so that you could easily move things from one side of the boat to the other. Um, it was oftentimes a bit of a, a bit of a maze trying to get either wire or plumbing from one side to the other. Hmm. So when you would, you, you would find that interesting as an engineer. Yes. <laughs> so, and then, <laughs> so basically you would, you'd have to fill your, if I got the uh, port and starboard correct here, you'd have to fill your left-hand tank up at, up when you're, when you're docked and yes. just, I'm a, would you basically just leave it full so that your ship wasn't, one side or the other more and just pull not, from the right hand tank or no not really i mean it's it's um the, the thing is is that there are only uh there are only like 42 gallon tanks so you, you go through that fairly quickly um and so having double that having 80 plus gallons is really what you want if not sure than that so um it was just kind of a, it was just kind of a real headache. And the fact of the matter is you're rarely at dock. I mean, once you, once you're, you splash, as they say, um, and you, uh, which comes with an interesting story in itself, but once you splash into the water, you basically, for the most part, are anchoring or maybe at a mooring ball because docking comes with fees and mm. you know being at a dock comes with a nightly fee um being on a mooring ball subsequently less but typically also a fee to whomever owns that mooring ball or there's anchoring which is basically free yeah so you know you are you once you splash and you're in the water um you may be in a in a bay or a cove, but you're looking for those places that are very comfortable to anchor 
and you know not not terribly far from land um and fairly shallow and places with a good hold because you do not want your anchor to drag uh while you're sleeping and find yourself someplace where you didn't intend to be when you wake up yeah that wouldn't be good <laughs> not at so, all so it sounds like you have a, a splash story well it's just that as you get things done in the yard and we have some through hull fittings so you have various through hull fittings that are that are for um your uh your speedometer uh, through hull fittings for your black water discharge to just <laughs> tanks, things like that. So there's a number of through hull fittings. Well, they should be sealed really well because when the yard brings the crane over and then they put you into a big sling and then they bring the boat out over and the, the whole sling and the crane drop you into the water, you should be very careful to check under your floorboards because when water's shooting up like a water fountain, that's not a good sign. So of course means you pull it right back out, bring it back up. Yeah. So had we not been diligent about checking under the floorboards, um, we would have gone a ways before we realized that we were filling with water. Oh my goodness. That would have, uh, that would have been a whole different adventure that I'm sure. Yes. Yes. So if, oh. I mean, if, if that were to happen, uh, yeah. how, how does the, does, I'm, I'm assuming there's something in the boat that's designed to at least slow that so that you're able to, to get back without losing the whole Well, boat. absolutely. There, you have emergency bilge pumps. Um, so you have, uh, you have a, a bilge pump that's an automatic bilge pump. You can turn it on manually or it'll turn on automatically you also carry wooden dowels that basically if you find that you do have a hole uh with a mallet you can slam the wooden dowel down into the hole to stem the the flow of water coming in those are all kinds of things that are in your emergency gear interesting so are those dowels what are they made of just they're wooden just dowels? basically a wood. They're just basically a, a a wood plug, a tapered wood plug in various sizes. So, okay. on what kind of uh, what kind of hole you may have, uh, whether you hit a a, a a rock or a piece of coral and you know punch a hole in your hull, that you could potentially plug it with a with a wooden dowel. How many? How many reefs did you have to look at? I mean, I saw, I remember seeing, you know, I was I would follow you guys on on your Facebook feed, and mm-hmm. there was that one picture of the the one stranded boat that you came across that had gotten stuck on some coral. I mean, how how, how common are the are the reefs out there that you have to look out for? And oh, I'm assuming you have some kind of map that helps you out with yes. that. Yes, yeah, they're quite common. They're quite common. Um, basically, you have lots of charts. And you have uh, GPS, you know, electronic navigation, which is um, basically what most people rely on. I mean, it's very, uh, it's very high tech these days. It will show you all those, all those areas, but you need to be extremely diligent when there are areas with with reefs 
uh, narrow channels. Um, you have to be aware of the tides. Um, you have to be aware of how much uh, water your your boat draws. You know whether you're you've got a, a deep keel or a shallow keel. One of the nice things about catamarans is that they have fairly shallow keels. So um, you know, in certain places you can go where the water's less than six feet deep without without hitting your keel. Whereas a monohull, a monohull um, often has a very deep keel that six foot you if it was six foot or less water you'd be on your keel and you know stuck hmm. so uh i'm assuming you have some kind of depth finder that, that's, oh, yes. that helps you track that i mean i'm assuming that i mean if you ever came up on a reef though i, I imagine those things jut up pretty quickly yes they do yes they do and we've had we had friends that we're going into a channel and decided to turn around and uh, managed to, to hit bottom. And yeah, it's not uncommon. It's not uncommon. And it's not uncommon, quite frankly, um, you know, to see boats that have ended up being stuck somewhere and needed help assistance getting off of there and that happens also of course in storms we were down there during tropical storm karen and there were boats that came off that off their anchor and a couple of them one ended up on a beach the other ended up on a reef um oh my and some others probably would have done the same except for the fact that many of us in the cruising community were were out in dinghies helping you know helping people getting you know additionally tied off um yeah <laughs> that people who are at risk of breaking free didn't actually break free yeah that wouldn't be good at all my goodness so what, what do you have to do to your boat to kind of, I mean, obviously you put the anchor down. I'm assuming you bring the sails in. Is there anything much more beyond that? Well, there is, there are apps out there, of course. App. Um, we got an app for that. App. There's an app for that. <laughs> um, an anchor dragging app. Um, basically you can, uh, you can log on, on your, basically on your phone or tablet and, um, it, with GPS location, you can set a radius. And if your boat were to swing, because your boat always swings with the wind, right? You got your anchor down, the boat is swinging wherever the wind, you know, the wind's always on your nose and it swings you around. Um, and uh, if you leave that radius, if you set a radius, it will, the alarm will go off if you go outside of that radius. Hmm. So, on occasion, we would use that. Um, not always, um, but if you are uh, anchored in a spot where if you drug, you know, 50 yards, you could end up on the rocks, uh, on a cliff or something like that, setting, a, setting an anchor or a radius so that if you were to leave your, that, position it was set an alarm off um was you know helpful yeah 
I would imagine. Did you yeah, guys we ever did have one time? We did have one time where we did not set it because we were just going in to have lunch. And um, we went into uh, into a, a beach uh, restaurant. So we take the dinghy. We travel everywhere by a dinghy. Sure. It's an 11 foot dinghy with a 20 horsepower outboard engine on it. And that's basically how you get back and forth, you know, pretty much daily between shore, uh, whether it's a dock or a beach and your boat. Um, so we went in, my wife and I went in for lunch and uh, we were in an area that was not well known for good anchor holds, but you know, it was, didn't seem like a, a particular problem at the time. We went into lunch, a big squall came in and boy, the wind came up, a torrential downpour. Well, we were fine. We were sitting in a restaurant and we were said, well, we'll just have a, we'll just have another rum punch, right? There you go. <laughs> wait, wait for the squall to pass. Well, after that, we had groceries because we combined our trip with the grocery store and sure. lunch and head on out. Well, the waves are crashing on the beach. So now we're trying to get in the dinghy, get the dinghy launched off the beach, uh, trying to get into it, trying to get our groceries into it um, and get back to our, our boat. And um, then I go to drive the the uh, shifter into forward and the pin comes loose of course so now the thing is waves are trying to basically smash us on the beach i'm trying to get the thing into forward get the outboard motor into forward finally managed to do that get out to our boat and things are beginning to maybe we headed out a little too early, but things are beginning to mellow down. So we, we get the stuff on board and we get on board and here comes uh, another dinghy up to our boat saying, Hey, do you, uh, do you realize your boat's not where you left it? And we're looking around and it's like, you're right. It's not, it's not exactly where we were anchored. Well, it had drug. Oh man. Towards another boat. And uh, fortunately, cruising community, they jumped on board. They came over to our boat, jumped on board, uh, pulled up the anchor, uh, anchor line road and put our boat kind of sort of back to where it was. <laughs> but it would have, um, it might have been harder to find had they not done that. <laughs> <laughs> like it could have been floating out to sea had they not done that but oh that was, my goodness yeah that was kind of our one big scare in that in that regard but you know everybody's got a, you know at least one kind of story like that well keeps everybody honest i guess so glad yeah. to glad to hear about the good community so <laughs> yes so how um how did the uh, the boat do electricity? I'm assuming you had some batteries. Was there a way you generated power? Yes, yes. We actually, that's one of the things that we did is we put in new solar panels. We wanted more power. Hmm. Um, we went with uh, 
the AGM batteries versus lithium. Lithium, of course, is the are the the, the highest grade ones that uh, people use, but very very pricey. Mm. Uh, we had AGM batteries and uh, new solar panels. Um, so most of our electricity, as well as we had a generator on board. Um, it's a it was. The original generator, it's large, it's like 600 pounds. Well, uh, we tried not to use it. We tried basically to use, you know, when you're down in the Caribbean, you have ample sunlight. So we tried to basically use our uh, battery power for most everything. Um, it worked uh, fairly well, um, but I must say, Luke, Electrical issues are kind of the bane of boater existence, as far as as far as I'm concerned. Because <laughs> I'm not an electrician. I'm not an electrical engineer. I'm perplexed by some of it. Um, and fact of the matter is, you know, there's not a lot of while, while you do have while you do have a basic manual for the boat. Um, there can be a lot of issues when you're living in a, you know, in a ocean filled with salt water and corrosion. Um, there are a lot of things that are just, you know, constantly you're trying to track down uh, a bad connection, uh, you know, some wiring that's, you know, just gotten old and corroded. Uh, circuit breakers, things like that, that are, um, that are continue to be challenging almost, uh, you know, on a, on a very regular basis. And that's where, that's where coming across and even in the islands coming across a very competent marine electrician can, can help, uh, immensely. I would imagine. So how much, um, cause I'm imagining that that's mostly coming just from the sea breeze, just throughout the ship. That's well, I'll tell you, you know, all you, if you set sail and, uh, and cruise in any kind of good conditions or bad conditions, by the time you anchor in the evening, your boat is basically covered with salt, with dried salt, right? Wow. The spray, the continuous spray of the hull against the waves, water splashing, um, that was another thing about, you know, fresh water is it's really nice to have enough fresh water to at least pull the hose out and rinse your boat because um, it's covered with just a layer of salt whenever you go, or you just hope for a shower in the next day or so, you know, sure. hour to, to, to take it all off, but everything gets covered in salt, everything. Um, and it corrodes everything. Everything metal and seawater are not compatible, quite frankly. <laughs> so you paint everything, right? Well, yeah, you try. You try. <laughs> so when, so y how often did you have to go for groceries? Um, I, I understand you had the, you know, water, uh, you had your water generator um, for the fresh yeah. water. But then how much... How much were you getting groceries and then how much were you just catching fish off the side of the boat? 
Well, some of each, quite frankly, you, you, you grocery shop very similar to like, if you were at home, we had two refrigerators and a, and a small freezer. Oh, wow. Yeah. So we had, well, when I say two refrigerators, I'm talking like two half size refrigerators, right? Uh, so maybe one refrigerator and one freezer, much like you would have in your home. Right. Okay. And, um, so you're, you're, you're grocery shopping basically on a, on kind of a weekly basis. Um, and then if you are, are sailing and, and to be frank, sailing is really under sale is really about maybe 10% of your time. You know, a mm. lot of times you are, you are anchored. Um, you are exploring the islands, you are doing boat maintenance. Um, but a lot of times you are, you are at anchor for, you know, a number of days at a different Island. Um, so every, you know, weekly you're, you're going grocery shopping, which is a little bit of a expedition every time because you oh, have, sure. to, you have to take your dinghy in typically to a dinghy dock, lock it up, find your transportation. If the supermarket isn't nearby, go get bags of groceries, haul them back, um, you know, back to the boat, get them all stored away. Um, so um, it's, it's, uh, it's not as easy as jumping into your car, you know, going out to your garage, getting in your car, grocery store. Sure. It's a, it's a, it's a little bit more of an expedition. It takes a better part of the, of the day, you know, to, to do that kind of stuff sometimes. So, uh, but you stock up really well. Um, and you know, if you're going to be doing any kind of longer passage, of course, you, you're always wanting, you're always wanting your, your dry goods, your canned goods, things like that stocked up pretty well. Um, you know, and also in case of there is an emergency, you want to have plenty of food on board. And then as far as fishing goes, um, a lot of times when you're anchored or you're at an island, um, you may or may not be legally allowed to fish. Many places have marine reserves around their islands, so they, oh. they do. Or it's limited to the local people that can do that, um, the island natives. Um, but once you are, you know, once you're a mile away from shore, mile two, three away from shore, you put out your lines, right? And you're basically trolling. So we we caught uh, mahi mahi, we caught a sailfish, barracuda, uh, tuna. Um, yeah, so we we caught a number of fish, which was always fun. Yeah, uh, and uh, always exciting. And, um, yeah, we even had on the live aboard cat that, uh, managed to emerge anytime I pulled a fish on board, uh, <laughs> to help me, to help me clean that fish. So very helpful. I'm sure. Yes. You know, would, very hold thing, would hold things down. Wouldn't take bites. I'm sure. Very helpful <laughs> for those scraps. So how I, I was going to get to that. So how, how, was it, uh, what was the cat's name? I, it's Cooper. Cooper, that's right. Yes, Cooper. How how was that? Because that 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 had to be a a whole different level of complexity at times. Um, that I'm, I'm or, or put it this way: how how many other people had had you know any kind of pet aboard? Um, 
a small percentage of people did have pets, whether mm-hmm. it was, it was uh, uh, primarily dogs, quite frankly. A lot of people, long, huh. lot of people would have dogs on board. Um, Cooper, the big orange cat, um, basically transitioned pretty well to sea life. Uh, it's fairly hot during the day, so you wouldn't necessarily see much of them during the day. Be, you know, find some nook that he would uh, sleep throughout the day, but he became very nocturnal on the boat and uh, would kind of patrol the perimeter of the boat all night long. Hmm. Uh, and then once it warmed up in the morning, he'd go back and do his, his nap thing. So um, all fun and games till he jumped in the hatch over our, our stateroom bed and landed right on my gut <laughs> <laughs> in the morning. Uh, yeah, that, yeah that uh were you asleep yeah made sure i closed the hatch um yeah thanks kidders oh my goodness so that's interesting having a cat aboard did uh did the cat like water no not really Uh, was intrigued by anything that came on board. You know, we, if we had a, we, we had a shrimp come up on the, on the stern and, you know, next thing I know, he's walking across the, the stern of the boat with a shrimp in his mouth that had, you know, flopped up onto the boat. Um, he was, uh, enamored by seagulls. If there were seagulls, we actually had a couple of ducks, um, in one of the bays, uh, on St. John in the Virgin Islands, a couple of ducks because we were staying in a national park and apparently these ducks just love boating people because they end up on your boat hanging out on your boat and so you know the ducks are on the boat yeah they'd actually come on to the boat uh make a mess and then get shooed off the boat very quickly okay well then they'd come back several times those are some bold ducks. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, but uh, that was, uh, you know, that was just one of the many places that we found. That's where actually in St. John, that's where I learned how to uh, uh, clean conch. So I was free diving for, for conch, bring them up. And then one of uh, my boating buddies, I had never cleaned any of them. What, what, what's a conch? Conch is a uh, is a is a big mollusk. It's it's uh you know the, the shell is basically I don't know about the you know can be almost the size of your head. And, oh wow! Yeah. So you clean them. You uh you pull the mollusk out of there um, and uh, soften soften it up. Make conch fritters. You know, roll. <laughs> Fry and make conch fritter. Um, it's kind of like a, uh, it's kind of like a, a giant oyster, I guess. Interesting. Yeah. And so you're, you're free diving. So then, was your boat like how, how how far down were you free diving? Well, I actually had a great opportunity. I took a I took a free diving class in uh, Grenada, and. Uh, I did pretty well because the instructor, uh, 
I kind of became friends with the instructor hmm. and, and we started going out really regularly. So he would bring the dinghy by, he and his buddy would come by the uh, Aviana, which was the name of our boat. He would come by Aviana, pick me up, and then we would go out and practice free diving. Now he was a competitive free diver. Oh my. So, uh, and an instructor, which was really interesting. But I was learning from him and I, my, my deepest dive, I managed to get to 85 feet, which was pretty cool. So, 85 feet, like down. So that's 85 feet down, 85 feet back up. Yes. <laughs> yes. Wow. We would drop a, we would drop a weighted line and there really wasn't anything to see. It was merely to see how, the depth that you could go in that, in that situation, right? When I was with him. So they drop a weighted line that um, had markers uh, every five feet. And then you would head down and basically dive down and reach your deepest point, turn around and come back up. A buddy diver would then dive down at that point because you're, if you were to black out, um, it's most likely that that's going to happen on the, when you're ascending back up the line and you get to, you know, 20 feet or so is when, if there is going to be a, a blackout uh, phase, that's typically where it happens. Is that because the, the pressure changes? It's basically... It's basically because of the the breath holding, you know, the breath holding amount of time. Um, so when you're coming back up, that if you if you watch, ever watch free diving, you can watch some amazing um, documentaries on free diving. But basically, when a free diver goes and they're doing competition, they have to come up and they have to both say. Uh, when they get to the surface, they have to say, I'm good. And basically, you know, give an okay signal or a thumbs up and say, I'm good. Because if they come up and they're just kind of groggy looking, they'll be disqualified in the competition because they oh, haven't really done it in with full consciousness. So they can, these, these extreme free divers can get to the surface and they may not be, you know, entirely conscious, but. But they can say I'm good. <laughs> no, if you can say I'm good and give the signal, then that's, that's good. That gives them the, um, the okay. But so, so what, when you said like, I figured out that I could get to 85 feet, is that purely based on how much like breath you felt you had, or was there some other like inner ear, like pressure? Yeah, it's inner ear. It, it was for me, it was primarily inner ear. It was just that I couldn't feel like I could clear my ears anymore. It just felt like everything was compressed so much that I hardly had enough left to, to push my eardrums out against the pressure. Mm. So that's what turned me around. It was, um, I felt like, I was at risk of bursting my eardrum. That sounds bad. 
if I didn't turn it around. Yeah. So, <laughs> but so, I mean, I, and, and this is, you know, I'm probably going to show you exactly how little I know. So yeah, with snorkeling, I, I know, you know, I've heard that, you know, it, you don't want to come back up too quickly, but I'm not sure about what depth's at. Is, is 85 feet anywhere where you'd be at risk of getting the bends? No, you really won't get the bends. The bends is all about scuba diving. The bends is, is, is scuba diving where you're breathing compressed air and you have nitrogen in your bloodstream that then bubbles up because it's been, it's, it's been compressed air in your bloodstream and you surface too quickly in that compressed air, you know, basically like opening a, a soda can or something where the bubbles suddenly rather than slowly diffuse out of your bloodstream, they bubble up like you opened a champagne bottle or something. That's what you, yeah. Okay. Different. Okay. So how long were you able to hold your breath for then? Um, I, well, so I did a static breath hold in the class, um, where a static breath hold is just basically where you, you, you breathe up, you know, several, several deep breaths and you go face down in the water and you have a, a, a buddy next to you and basically, um, you go for a period of time and then every 15 seconds, they'll tap you on the shoulder and you just basically give a, I'm okay, you know, and they'll tap you and you're face down in the water. And I got just shy of three minutes. Wow. Yeah. I mean, so, I don't, I don't time myself. I mean, I used to as a kid, but I mean, like that's, did, did it take you long to get up to that level or? Not really. No, not really. Um, I practiced a little bit, but, um, but they, they show you the techniques and it's not, it's not hyperventilating. It's just deep breathing using the full, you know, breathing deep diaphragm breathing and, um, and relaxation methods, um, to be able to just kind of, uh, linger on. And quite frankly, I was told to come up just shit three minutes. So I was a little bit, I was a little bit upset because I was seriously, I was just like seconds away from the full three minute mark and I was tapped to come up. Why, you know? Why'd they tap you? I don't know. I don't know. I think they just thought that that was a little bit for a, for a new, <laughs> <laughs> maybe that was a little excessive. Doing too I, don't good. I think my doing instructor, too well. <laughs> I think my instructor got nervous and I, there I was, he taps me and he gives me the time. And I went, what? You had me come up second short of, sure. <laughs> yeah, I was, yeah, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to get that mark. I'll tell there you, you that. Okay. All right. All right. I'm going to get there. So, uh, I'm, you know, when you're down underwater and swimming around, you're, you know, using up a lot more of that oxygen. How long were you yeah. able to stay down when you're actually, you know, down and free diving? That's a, that's, that's quite a bit different. Yes. That's quite yeah, a bit sure. static, just lying on the, lying on the surface in a meditative state. Um, in that case, it was, you know, um, anything around a minute, um, you know, a minute, minute and a half would be about the most. That's still pretty good. That's, I mean, yeah. that's, that's, 
Well, like I said, I haven't timed myself in a long time, so I don't know where I'm at, but <laughs> well, yeah. And there's also good practice. Uh, there's an app for that too. Oh, um, wow. Yeah. <laughs> where you can do a whole sequence of breath holds, uh, and track it, track on an app and it just kind of helps you to increase your breath hold time. So oh. there's, there's some interesting ones. So s- something that you know, I've heard people talk about, you know, free diving and holding their breath a little bit, but um, did you find that, you know, you using tech, like specific techniques, I'm assuming is what really upped the amount of time for you to be able to be, you know, holding your breath underwater? Yeah, there were, there were techniques of breathing, you know, beginning to breathe, you know, uh, deep in your belly and then up into your chest, into your, into your throat and things like that, that, um, that helped as well as oftentimes, like I, I'd, I'd snorkeled, uh, quite a bit prior to this, uh, you know, this cruising lifestyle. So I, I was, I've been a scuba diver since I was in my teens and I love, oh, wow. yeah. And so, but, you know, they even teach you things like, you know, typically you don't clear your ears until you start diving down. Then you get down to about six feet and you start clearing your ears, you know, because you begin to feel the pressure on your ears. They have you do it uh, before you even start your dive. So they basically are having you, you know, pop your ears <laughs> outward before you even dive just to get kind of ahead of the curve, hmm. right? You're, you're, you're putting uh, pressure on your eardrums from the inner ear before you dive down to kind of get ahead of it. So I'd never even considered doing that. I always did it as soon as I began to feel discomfort as I dove, but yeah, there's little techniques like that that they teach you. Nice. So with the scuba dive, did you, I'm assuming you didn't have scuba gear on the boat. No, I did not. Um, I would have liked to have had scuba gear on the boat. Um, and there are other boats, uh, you know, that were our size, um, that did have dive gear and a compressor on the boat. I just wasn't, I wasn't, I hadn't made the investment. Mm. It's an investment, of course, to get a compressor and all the dive gear on the boat. Um, and pretty much wherever you go, if you want to dive, there's dive, you know, there's dive outfitters that'll take you. Uh, but, uh, yeah, that would have been a nice to have. I just didn't, <laughs> never, never got that far. I was, you know, invested pretty heavily into the boat in the first place. Does your wife snorkel? Yes. Yes. Oh, nice. Frankie and I would, uh, would snorkel and find all kinds of, uh, cool little sea creatures and just have fun. Um, saw lots of turtles, saw lots of rays, um, squid, you know, just all kinds of, all kinds of sea life. It was, you know, pretty much wherever you went and you'd find interesting sea life. I'm sure. I mean, so did pretty much every port that you, that you came into have some kind of scuba gear. So it was just like, Hey, let's go scuba yeah. diving today. Yeah, you just you if you want to, you could just go and find a, a an outfitter, a scuba scuba outfitter, and go go with them. You you'd see dive boats all the time heading out, and yeah, it was it was easy to find. So I know up here, 
in America, you got to do mm-hmm. like some certifications in order to do that. Was it was it a little bit more loosey goosey with the regulations down there? Or? Not really. No, not really. Most most every place wanted you to have a a, a basic open water certification. So yeah, I would I would recommend it no matter where you went is to have your your certification. Almost all of them will, will ask for it. No, makes sense. So, how many sharks did you see? Not a ton. A um, few black tip sharks. Um, not a lot. Uh, I saw a lot more porpoises and dolphins than uh, than sharks for sure. Uh, especially when you're out cruising, they tend to like to keep pace with your boat, and so you'll see them, you know, swimming right along with you if you're if you're at sail. Um, That's got to be so cool. <laughs> they are so fun. They are so fun. So elegant and fun to watch. It's amazing. The sharks, not so much. Uh, <laughs> well, not not that they're not so much fun to watch. Yeah. <laughs> it's that they're not that all that prolific in the Caribbean. Now, Bahamas, as I understand, and I did not do a lot of sailing in the Bahamas, but I understand that they are more prolific in the in the Bahamas than they are in the Caribbean. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Do you know? Do you know why? Not really. No. Um, just, just the environment. I'm sure. Hmm. Now, Interesting. There's differences. There's differences all over. Like, um, uh, we would catch barracuda down in the Southern Caribbean, and you could eat barracuda in the Southern Caribbean. Uh, especially if they weren't really any longer than your arm um, is just kind of the, 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 uh, the measure for them. However, the farther North you get, they carry a toxin and I forget the exact name of it, but they carry a toxin. You do not want to eat them uh, in the Bahamas. They, you can become extremely sick. It's the shark uh, toxin. It's those sharks. <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. Yeah. I, I don't know why they never really delved into it all that much, but uh, yeah, they basically say once you get much farther north, you don't want to, you don't want to eat barracuda. That's interesting. Yeah. Huh. Um, so one of the things that, you know, flipping through your posts that I saw, you, you talked about the green flash. What, yeah. what, what is, I had, ne- I, I have no idea what that is. I'm assuming it oh, has to do with sunset, it. but is, yes, it has to do with the sunset. It's a, it's, it's almost, <laughs> it's almost on kind of a mythical kind of thing or uh, legendary, but I just saw uh, one was captured. Oh, I want to say it was in Hawaii just a week or two ago that uh, I think somebody captured it, but I've heard of it. I've heard of the green flash and, um, and we were sitting one night and, you know, it was always one of the, one of the standards on the, the boat is no matter what you're doing, you know, chore or whatever, that basically ends at sunset, right? At sunset mm. or it's, downtime you should really be wrapping things up about three o'clock in the afternoon but must be done by sunset because that's when you're going to kick back and uh, just watch the sun go down and um, 
saw more beautiful sunsets in the Caribbean uh, than I had in my, you know, whole previous life. Um, but it happened to be New Year's Eve, and we're watching the sunset, and all of a sudden, I see it, and I turn to Frankie, and she turns to me, and I said, "Did you see that?" And she said, "A green flash," and I was like, "Yes." So it's a it's a phenomenon that when the atmospheric conditions are just right, that when the sun at the very minute second rather that the sun the last sun dips below the the, the horizon, there can be a, a flash of green, and it's very rare, but it's a real thing. And so like green flashes in like there's a flash like just on the horizon or like the whole skylights. No, it's or... just on the horizon. It's just on the horizon. Interesting. And goes down wider than the sun, but a flash. Yes. Interesting. I'm going to have to I'm going to have to look that up. That sounds really you cool. You might be able to find it on YouTube because, you know, there are people that set their GoPros or whatever cameras up every night with the hopes of capturing that, that flash and i'm i'm sure you can if you if you search you could you could find that i'll have to poke around and find that so yeah. uh green flash is an excellent transition to uh the stars at night have yeah. been incredible amazing truly amazing um they i'll tell you it can be so clear down there and it depends on where you are. I mean, you can be in a, you can be in a, in a bay near a town or a city on an Island, but you can also be in a very, very remote bay, uh, often referred to as a naked anchorage. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, very remote, um, and uh, not just by not just by my wife and I, but by cruisers in general. Oh, sure. oh, naked anchorage. <laughs> <laughs> yes, yes, yes. Um, but um, yeah, when you get to a place like that, you can have the most incredible starlit skies and shooting stars. And in fact, on one passage that we were doing from island to island, um, we were heading up to the Virgin Islands, had a beautiful night sail. Um, We had uh, just a a wonderful wind. We hadn't done a ton of night sails. So this was... Yeah, I was going to ask that that, that, that's got to be, I mean, sailing at night on the water in the dark with reefs around, you got to be like... Well, this is where it's not reefs. So... Basically okay. left an island, you're headed to another island, you have a fairly good idea of how much time it's going to take. Don't necessarily want to be getting there before uh, daybreak, right? Because you want to be able to navigate by sight as well as by your electronics when you get um, mm. to your destination. But that evening, you know, we knew that we were going to be out on the water. We would still be well offshore by the time the sun started coming up. And we had uh, a wonderful wind. Uh, we were doing 
you know, five or six knots, just a nice, easy sail, watching the stars um, and watching shooting stars out there. And just a very, you know, if you have the, if the wind is in your favor and that's not always, Mm -hmm. um, but if the wind is in your favor and it's, uh, it's off your beam, you know, to your side, um, that's when your sail is full. Uh, it can be very consistent. It can be very smooth. You're not slamming into waves. You're basically just, you know, kind of up and down, easy, very easy roller coaster. You know, not roller coaster, but you know, <laughs> yeah, easy rolling, rolling, very nice, but not getting slammed or anything like that. And it can be very pleasant. So I'm assuming you're able to see, I mean, on those nights, like the Milky Way galaxy pretty well, too. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Milky Way galaxy. Sometimes you'll see um, uh, uh, plankton, you know, that that lights up. Um, yeah. Yeah. So we, we actually just were, um, you know, the, the, the kids like the nature shows and we'll sit down, uh-huh. you know, and, and put those on as a family every once in a while. We were watching this one called... Uh, night on, i think it's night on earth uh, and they were you know talking about what different animals do and whatnot throughout the night but one of them uh the one we just watched had to do with the ocean and it talked about the uh i think it was called the luminous tide where yeah. basically yeah. there's these little mini creatures in the ocean yes. that basically any kind of disturbance turns into light and luminescent I, plankton yes yeah and i, I remember see, i just recently watched the life of pi and they had that in that movie and i was like oh okay yeah cool special effects blah 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 and then i see it on this thing and it's like oh that's real yeah like that's that's incredible that is yeah. absolutely incredible frankie and i went took the dinghy uh one night for a birthday dinner and we went into a restaurant and came back out through this little cove. There were kind of some channels and a cove. And we come through this cove in our dinghy and the, we're leaving just a trail of golden uh, luminescent plankton behind us. Oh, my goodness. And, you know, we just kind of start doing like figure eights and things like that. It's just leaving these amazing trails of uh, of lit up plankton behind us it was pretty it was a pretty cool finish to a to a pretty nice dinner i gotta say man that's so it, it was go- so the one that we saw it was all green so i you saw yeah, golden kind of a, yeah kind of a greenish gold yeah interesting i wonder how many colors there are probably not too many but no <laughs> well, yeah i don't know but that i mean that's that being able to see the stars and see um, luminous tides like that—that's, I don't know. Yeah, that's pretty a, incredible. That's really it's pretty a good incredible. experience. It's a good experience for sure. <laughs> so, after you got all your your certifications done, and uh-huh. you were kind of—I I know you hung out in it was Grenada for for quite a while. It was Grenada, right? and actually, when I say certifications, like for the boat. Um, we, uh, our insurance company, um, as a requirement to be insured, we had to have a licensed captain on board for 40 hours. So, um, we hired, uh, 
a young lady, 25 years old, uh, had, was a licensed captain, great experience. And, you know, at first it was like, well, can you, can you come on board, you know, every day for a week? And, and it was like, well, why do that? We have two additional staterooms. Why don't you just stay with us? And so she came on board, stayed with us, and we sailed around for a week. And it was just an amazing experience. We did everything from, uh, you know, practicing all different kinds of uh, setting, setting the sails in different configurations uh, to she would have us get the charts and the compass out and, you know, the old school navigation, not relying on the electronics, but actually, you know, plotting our path and our course uh, on the charts and everything. Um, she was just really amazing. And uh, it was a great experience. It was a great experience and build a lot of confidence. It was it was good. So when you were navigating without without any digital assist, um, mm -hmm. was that mostly via landmarks or were you, I mean, were you out at night, like with a sextant, all of that, like? No, not a sextant. That's, that's <laughs> really hardcore. Um, I, I have, you know, I have heard of sailors that, you know, have done that as a kind of as a hobby. Mm. Um, but for the most part, yes, it is. It is landmarks. Um, it's compass headings. It's calculating your speed and your compass heading, um, and then triangulating when you get close enough to a, a shore or a landmark. Triangulating, and you know, confirming your position and confirming you are where you thought you. Should. <laughs> yeah. Um, so. How, how often were you in a situation where you couldn't see land at all in any direction? Did that, did that oh, happen at all? Cause there's so many small little yeah. islands or. Yeah, it, it, it happens from time to time. And, and probably the, the scariest time was uh, when we got caught in a squall and um, we, this squall hit, we were heading from one Island to another and uh, we got caught in a squall and we knew that there was another island off to our starboard side that we didn't want to be anywhere near. It's all cliffs. Mm. And the squalls come up really quickly. Um, they have a standard that um, if you think you should be reducing the amount of sail that you have up, uh, you probably should have already done it. Okay. <laughs> so... They come on really fast, frighteningly fast. So it may look a little gray. The sky may look a little gray, you know, to, to one side or the other. And then the, you know, two minutes later, it's, it's howling, right? Mm. When you begin to feel any of that or see that you want to begin to reduce your sails. Uh, you don't want full sail um, because it can overpower your boat. It can, potentially break your mast. It can potentially flip your boat over. Um, it can do some really bad things. So when you begin to see bad weather, you want to drop your sails, you know, or, or begin at least reducing the amount of, of sail that you have out. Um, we got hit by a squall scrambling to get sails, you know, down. Um, 
visibility turned to zero, wind is howling, um, and I'm, I look down at my compass and it's showing me that I'm going 180 degrees different direction than all my intuition basically said, right? Oh, so man. that can't be right. That can't be right. I can't be going, I can't be going, you know, east when I'm supposed to be headed west. And it's kind of one of those situations that you got to trust your instruments. And so sure, I turn it to go the direction I, my compass is telling me I should mm -hmm. be and everything clears up and sure enough, all the islands were exactly where they were supposed to be. So oh, I, thank goodness. I was disoriented by 180 degrees in just in the, in the time that it took to, to be getting things stowed away, get sails down, get, get, you know, all my lines tied off. And by the time I got back to the helm and looked, I, thought I was going the right direction, but I really wasn't. But <laughs> it's kind of one of those things that um, that you learn as a, I have a private pilot's license and you learn then that you need to trust your instruments. You're, you'll, otherwise your, your, your instincts may not always serve you well in those kind of situations. Yeah. That's gotta be, that's gotta be weird. I mean, you usually, you know, being able to know where you are, I mean, especially it's like being 180 degrees off is like that. Yeah. A little disconcerting for sure. Yeah, definitely. So, um, so other times when you're out on the open water, it's, it can be, it, it can be perfectly fine. You know, you, your instruments are really good at telling you where you are and, and that kind of thing. So, so was having that gal, uh, on board for a week, the the majority of what you had to do to satisfy insurance before they let you kind of sail away on your own. Yes, yeah, um, it was just one of those boxes that you have to check before. Sure. You know, and, and insurance is a very interesting thing because um, you know your insurance basically dictates because of hurricanes and such kind of thing um your insurance basically tells you where you shall not be during particular times of the year right? interesting like oh tornado. okay yeah that makes it during certain times of the year i thought you meant like yeah. from like week to week you're like checking no in no with no. Your... <laughs> no no but for five six months out of the year you know there's certain places you you must not be um and uh that's why grenada is such a uh a cruising uh kind of mecca i guess you might say sure because it's just below what they call uh it's just outside of the box so uh you'll find a lot of boaters down there uh in various parts of the year just to stay in the hurricane zone yeah i'm sure a hurricane on a boat like that would be uh more fun than you want to have so no <laughs> so so once you kind of got everything you know you got your boat put together you got your certifications you got the insurance mm -hmm. all checked off 
that had to be a pretty great feeling to be able to just be like, all right, where do you want to go? Yeah, very much so. Because then it's just, you know, which islands that you want to go to and, and visit. And quite frankly, we did have we did have higher aspirations to uh, sail longer and farther than we did. Um, but then, of course, the COVID thing hit. Um, it made uh, made sailing to islands uh, very difficult because most of the islands basically just closed down. And wherever, wherever people were was kind of where they were stuck. Um, and this was back in, you know, this was back in April. Um, yeah. May is when it really began to shut down the islands. And uh, we were in the Virgin Islands. We were in the British Virgin Islands. And things started shutting down everywhere throughout the islands. And so we thought, well, maybe it's best if we went into U.S. waters. So we sailed to the U.S. Virgin Islands and kind of hunkered down there. There were still cruise ships coming in, you know, uh, with thousands of passengers. And we were there for a couple of weeks, you know, and they continued to come in every single day with thousands of passengers. And then, bam, overnight not a single one. So they shut huh. down. That's great. And I remember hearing a lot of, a lot of chatter about that, where it was like those cruise ships, they'd have, you know, an outbreak on the cruise ship and then they didn't want to let passengers off. Cause they're all just going to run off and infect everyone. But at the same time, they're all just like, they're infecting themselves. I mean, that's, uh, that's, that, that, that was such a weird situation, but, uh, yeah, I mean, it's interesting to hear that they were there that long. I guess I didn't realize the cruise ships had been had been going yeah. for that long. Yeah, mm. they were coming in, and and uh, it's it's interesting, you know. You see a uh, you see everything from small boats like we're on, uh, in a lot of in a lot of these uh, on a lot of these islands, you'll see everything from small boats with couples you know cruising couples to mega yachts uh you know billionaires mega yachts with helicopters and you know every toy that you can imagine oh my goodness cruise ships so it's it's quite a you know you can be you can be in uh in a in a bay with mega yachts and cruise ships or you can you know, when you're tired of that, you go find that naked anchorage, <laughs> <laughs> which is, uh, which is, uh, you know, quite a bit, uh, more mellow. Oh, I'm sure. I'm sure. So with, I mean, it's not with, with being used to, you know, going in and grabbing your groceries, you know, essentially once a week, mm -hmm. um, how, I mean, that had to get interesting because I'm sure people started to get a little bit, I mean, it's, I mean, it happened throughout the whole year. The paranoia level just kept going up. The COVID thing. Yeah. Yeah. It got, uh, it got a little bit weird. I would say that, uh, it, 
as far as the Islanders were concerned, it, I, I never really saw a lot of paranoia and fear amongst the Islanders. Um, you know, they, they were, they were masked up just like we were. Everybody was pretty considerate as I can, uh, as my experience. Uh, but it was, you know, it just became the, the local governments became more and more strict about, you know, what you could and couldn't do. And, um, and it got to the point where, you know, one of the things about going from island to island is you have to basically check in and check out of every island. So you go to a, you know, you have French islands, you have Dutch islands, you know, every island basically has its own government in the Caribbean. So as you go from island to island, you have to go in with your passport. You have to fill out the paperwork. You have to basically, you're getting a, you're essentially getting a visa to stay on every island. And that's another one of those things that besides going in and getting groceries and being kind of a, an entire day long expedition at times, you know, just going to a new island and checking in, finding that office that you need to go to, you know, you have guides and things like that, guidebooks that basically tell you, but you're almost always going into an area that's kind of a marina and then finding that government office where you go in with your passport and filling out the paperwork, how long you're going to stay, how many are on board, uh, the specifications of your boat, you know, identification numbers, things like that. And then when you leave that island, you have to check out as well. So you have to go back either to that office or sometimes, you know, on the, if, if you can find an office on the opposite side of the island, because you, you know, in the last week you sailed around to the far side or something, sure. but then you have to check out. Um, so that, so you can't just tell them, yeah. you can't just tell them I'm going to be out for like, we're, we're going to be here for five days and five days so, later you leave. Some places, but <laughs> most of the time you check out, you're getting a stamp in your passport. So, uh, yeah. So um, it's, that's pretty rare actually to be able to, to without going back in to check out. So, um, but as things were closing down, uh, these islands were basically not allowing people to check in. So, you know, people were getting stuck where they were and uh and so we decided to head to the to the u.s virgin islands and just to be in u.s waters because we didn't know how weird it was going to get quite frankly yeah yeah that uh did other i mean when you're out there in that in that um community is is it is it prime is it primarily americans or are there i mean how many um uh i would say Americans, British make up the bulk of the cruising community in the Caribbean. Um, then we had some friends that were from South Africa and Germany. Um, and wow. they, got a, they got into a, they left pre-COVID, sailed through the Panama Canal and were headed down to the, uh, south pacific okay. oh wow south pacific islands when covid went into full effect and they were told they couldn't 
they couldn't they couldn't anchor they couldn't come into those islands they instead of three weeks you know that was a three-week passage from the panama canal down to the to the uh, and this was with uh, a couple uh two young uh girls and a mother-in-law oh my goodness three-week passage down to those islands they couldn't get in they wouldn't let them stop at any of those islands they ended up having to turn sail north and then sail back east to hawaii 60 days they were on the water 60 days holy cow yeah um that was probably the worst time you could have chosen that they could have chosen to, to make that passage when everything and they were out of options. They were out of options. They ended up having to go to Hawaii, which is a, which is a rugged sail. Um, You know, it's one thing to make the passage to the South Pacific, but then to turn, go up North and then head back East. That's yeah. That's some serious sailing. Well, and that's out in legit open water. I mean, that's yeah. that's as open There's as it nothing. gets. That's as open as it gets. You're absolutely right. Wow. So we were quite fortunate in that we we got to the Virgin Islands, and then uh, we decided that we had kind of wrapping things up, and um, and fortunately, my my uh, my kids. Both uh, my son and my daughter were in their early 20s, were able to come down and help me, uh, along with a friend of mine, bring it from the Virgin Islands up to Florida. So that was that was the longest sail that I did, and that was 11 days, um, basically with one stop um, in the Bahamas, one overnight stop where they just kind of rest after being on the water for that amount of time. Hmm. So you, so that was, that was taking the boat to Florida to, is is the boat still yours or is it? No, we sold it. We sold it. We got it to Tampa, Florida and sold the boat. Okay. Um, So uh, that was kind of the last big uh, passage um, that uh, I got to have my kids down, give them the, the experience of sailing for, you know, for days and it was it was pretty cool they got to unplug you know unplug from internet unplug from all of that there's no wi-fi (laughs) there was no wi-fi there was there were magazines and books hey what paper (laughs) (laughs) it was actually a wonderful experience it was yeah i i don't think they would have traded it you know they were they were ready to get out of their apartments right oh yeah yeah, they were ready to. It, here it was June, you know, of last year, and they were ready to get out. And um, yeah, fortunately, they they were still able to fly into St. Thomas and then help me sail it back up. So that was pretty cool. So twelve days. You said tw- twelve or eleven days? About eleven days. Okay, so I guess that it's pretty. You probably didn't have to do, didn't have to do too much fishing, but I mean, did you? Well, we tried. We didn't really catch much. I was kind of surprised. I was hoping for my my son uh, primarily. I was hoping that he would catch uh, you know something something big and exciting, but no, it didn't really happen. Um, 
but we did have a great experience. We had, uh, we had many, many dolphins join us, you know, on several days. Um, we had, uh, you know, we had to, we had to work in shifts. So basically three hour shifts. So, um, two of us would be awake and two of us would be asleep, um, for three hours all through the night. Most of us would be up during the day unless we just decided to take a nap because we were getting exhausted. But <laughs> yeah. through the night, it's basically three hours on, three hours off as we were on shift. So, um, And then just sailing. Well, motoring and sailing, I will say, because the winds don't always stay with you. Um, so I would say probably two-thirds of the time we were sailing or maybe three-quarters and a quarter of the time we were motoring. Interesting. So when you're sailing, how do you, is it just the direction of the sail that kind of controls the direction of the, because I'm, you, you, you can't control the direction of the wind. No. So how do you use that in your favor to be able to say, I want to go to Florida, not, you know, Africa or something like that? <laughs> well, fortunately, yes. Fortunately, um, in this case, we were running what they call running from the wind. So the wind was at our stern. It was at our back. Okay. And so that's, that's pretty standard. And in, in which case, you know, your, your, uh, your sail is just basically at, acting like a, like a parachute or something, mm -hmm. right? Blowing you. It's just blowing you forward, right? Cause it's coming from your, your stern. Um, most sailboats do the best when it's actually coming off your beam. So basically 90 degrees to the direction that you want to sail. In which, yeah, in which case your sail is acting almost like an airfoil. So it's coming around the, the, the side of your sail and the sail is actually like an, like a, like a airplane wing. Um, driving the, the boat forward. Um, so that can be the most pleasant sailing, quite frankly, is when it's off of your beam, either 90 degrees or maybe a little bit farther aft, but to your side. And that can be kind of the, the perfect kind of wind. Interesting. Yeah. I, w I would not have thought that, you know, intuitively. You think yes. you want it behind you, but. No, the only problem with it be coming up behind you is that if it shifts at all, you typically you 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 can have an accidental jibe, which means that your sail can fling across and come to the other side, right? If the wind were to sh so you have it coming from your stern, mm -hmm. and if it shifts a little bit, it can slam your sail to the other side so if you're running for any period of time like that you want to tie your your boom off so that it doesn't have that opportunity to fling to the other side because that's that's what's called an accidental jibe and it can do some real damage so. oh i'm sure that's that's a lot of force that would be shoved into the mast i'm sure huge amount of force so how how is the is the sail kept in place? Is it, is it with rope or I'm sorry, um, 
I'm, I'm using land land lovers term line. <laughs> <laughs> is it is it tied lines. down with lines, or is is there something actually on the mast that like you know pins it in place or something? Um, both. I mean, basically, you have you have shrouds that reinforce your mast. Okay. So they're basically cables going up and keeping your mast, uh, up straight. Um, then your boom has lines and, uh, you have halyards, which basically pull their, your sail up and down the mast. So you have, those are other lines that are referred to as halyards. Um, and so, yeah, there's just, numerous configurations that you can put your sail into um, depending on where the wind's coming from, uh, how strong it is. Uh, and there's a lot of tuning and, and that's kind of one of the things that, um, you know, the more you sail, the more you get in touch with that tuning because it kind of becomes a game as to, you know, can I, can I get another knot of speed and <laughs> pick up one more knot of speed? If I make this adjustment, no, maybe I should let it out a little bit. No, no. We were doing better when we had it in a little tighter. And so you make these tiny little adjustments as part of your, as part of your sailing experience, you know, you just make these tiny adjustments watching your speed indicator and, and saying, Oh yeah, here, I, this is, this, I'm doing great now. This is a sweet spot. Yeah. Yeah. So exactly. you really, you really got to know your boat. You get to know it. You do get to know it. And, uh, you know, what conditions are best, uh, you know, uh, you know, how to make adjustments. You also know how to make it more comfortable too. You know, there are times when maybe speed isn't your top, priority maybe it's making the ride a little more comfortable which means maybe you'll bleed a little speed um and take a little different angle to make your ride more comfortable hmm. okay yeah so it kind of depends on what your your goal is for the day <laughs> sure getting places are relaxing yeah yeah um so now that you've been you've been on land for mm -hmm. for a good amount of time now what's uh what's what, what's the piece that you miss the most from being out on the water oh well i like i said you know um there's a lot of maintenance and a lot of things but i tell you i'm grinning ear to ear when i'm under sail you know when our boat was was doing well when the conditions were 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 prime uh i was just ear to ear enjoying it you know heading to the to the next cove and sandy beach um you know um whether we'd been to that particular one or it was a brand new one that we were going to explore that's that is the part that i miss um parts that i don't miss of course are maintenance the <laughs> really extreme weather conditions um the uh the hassle of you know checking in and out of islands and sometimes you know just that kind of stuff um but uh yeah there were some really there were some really amazing parts the sunsets for sure yeah i bet as you mentioned for sure yeah nice 
And the, the, the sea life, the sea life has always been uh, really cool. It's like you, you're always finding new, interesting little creatures. I bet. Learning yeah. about a conch. Did I say that right? Yes. A conch. <laughs> right. Yes. Now I know. Uh, so, so once you get the house sorted out, what's mm-hmm. what's the plan? I saw I saw a picture of a couple motorcycles. Is that is that in the yeah. future? <laughs> yes. Well, we have a couple. I actually went for a ride today. Um, we're living in close proximity to the Olympic Peninsula, so I plan on doing a lot of exploration around the Olympics. Um, uh, we have a group of riders that we like to travel with. And, um, and we still have a number of cruising friends that have boats that, uh, we have invitations to come visit. So if well, there we, you go, if we need a fix, um, without fixing the boat, <laughs> really, uh, we'll take our friends up on, on, uh, a visit and fly down and, and hang with them. So very nice. Very nice. All right. Well, I think we're at about time. So thank you very much for, for taking the time to explore or and, and remember, I guess, all of the, the good times you had sailing. Um, I have to admit, lo- lo- looking through all those pictures that were flipping through my Facebook feed every once in a while, it was, it's, it's cool to be able to sit down and chat with you about it. Yeah, it was, it was a great experience. I wouldn't trade it for anything. Um, it was a great experience. We actually, you know, intended to be out longer, like I say, and go farther. Um, but, uh, you know, it was time for us to, to move on. Things were locked down. We were missing the Pacific Northwest. There's no doubt about it. It's a wonderful place to live. And, um, so, you know, we decided to wrap that chapter up, but I would not trade it for anything. So, I'd encourage anybody that was interested to uh, to potentially look at ways that they could they could try it because, like I said, we, we met wonderful people, we had wonderful experiences, and uh, yeah, I I look forward to visiting some of those folks again. Nice, awesome. Well, once again, thank you, and you have an excellent night. You too. Keep in touch. Let's see.